Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold unto sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. If I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. If I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now I do what I do not want. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. If I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, weddings are still a big deal in our culture, and I've at least had a couple of friends who have gone through, let's just say, the enormous expense and uh, preparation for those uh, events. But I've come to realize that a lot of that preparation has a little bit of a downside in the minds of the couple. Uh, having seen hundreds of college students get married over the years, one of the things I can tell you that makes it a problem is that the marriage ceremony, it feels like an ending, doesn't it? You know, this is what I mean. With all the planning and the anticipation being as high as it is, it almost makes the wedding feel like the culmination of everything you were hoping for. At last, you know, we think, finally, I, I found the one. I've arrived. I, perfect companionship, unlimited sexual experiences, and relational nirvana at last. <laughs> but of course, how long does it take? A month, a year, years, before we suddenly realize that, like, we kind of got to live with this person till either me or that person dies. And the truth is the wedding can feel like this great ending, but the truth is it's only the beginning. The struggle to learn to live with another sinner is something that takes a lot of marriages by surprise. Some of them don't make it because of that very reason. 
Well, the same sensation, I think, is true for many Christian seekers because Paul, when he introduced to us this great doctrine of justification by faith, is so grand and sweeping that it almost feels like an ending. At last, we think, I've arrived. Acceptance with God, spiritual nirvana at last. But of course, Paul explains that when the Spirit of God comes to do a work about you in the work of justification, he then begins to do a work within you to give you a whole new life or what we refer to as sanctification. But it turns out that that sanctification is only going to be gained through a fight, through a struggle, which I feel like we need to stop and consider for a moment because I do think that there's obviously lots of people that when they hear that there's some work to be extended or engaged in whenever we have to live the Christian life, it's almost immediately distasteful to us. And because of that, we tend to always look for what I've gotten to call um, Christian gimmickry to sort of make us into the better people we know we're supposed to be. On the one hand, there's a lot of people that go after what I might call the formulaic approach. That is, they start hunting for victory out of the latest Christian book. They, they've assumed they've achieved victory because they've polished up some manageable part of their life, which when it comes to honesty, if we're really honest, wasn't that hard to manage in the first place. We throw around these meaningless phrases like, well, you know, I just needed to let go and let God. Or, you know, I just needed to take self off the throne and put Christ there. Or I just needed to let Jesus take control. It's gimmickry. The other kind of gimmick that comes down is what I would call the people that are longing for a, for a mystical experience. We hope that maybe we can come into worship and be elevated into some kind of feeling state that will magically make me into what I'm supposed to be. We search if we're of the more charismatic type for second blessings of the Holy Spirit to turn us into good people. We pray for God to just take this sin away, having no sense that God's work in us is no kind of magic wand. The third category of people is what I'll call folks that really, honestly, they avoid the whole discussion through distraction, which is Christianity has always been on the periphery of their life anyway. And so careers and spouses and children and hobbies those are all welcome diversions from what, honestly, they just don't feel like was really worth the effort. But none of that can take away from the fact that in Romans chapter 7, Paul is giving this amazing, if not rather technical, so keep your Bibles open this morning, to the dynamics of the fight that goes on that we have to understand if we're ever going to figure out how to plow through this commonplace Christianity we've been working against this particular spring. That is, Paul is saying, if you can understand how the fight works, perhaps we'll fight better. So this morning, I just want to throw out two points. Number one, the reality of the fight, that there is a fight. And then secondly, we need to find the location of the fight. Explain that in just a second. Let's start, first of all, with the reality is, because I do think for some of us, it's, it's worth wondering why there would be a struggle in the first place. And Paul gives a very simple explanation. There's a fight in the Christian life because the law of God started it. Paul says, I look, I was a righteous, self-righteous Pharisee before I became a Christian. And because I was being a good Jew, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out God's law, his rules for living. But something changed in my relationship to that law when I became a Christian. Now remember, Paul in just the chapter that we studied last week, chapter six, was drawing these really dramatic contrasts between the life lived under the law and the life lived under grace. Back in chapter 6, 14, he says this, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
So with all these problems with the law, with our newfound freedom at Christ, Paul anticipates someone saying to themselves, sweet, so we're done with all those rules, right? We can get rid of all that ridiculous stuff We quit bothering with it. But of course, the whole section of our text is Paul coming and saying, no, actually the problem is not with the law. The problem actually is with you. The law is holy, just, and good. It's us that is the problem. That is what he'll call our flesh or our remaining sin. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But notice that Paul is saying that the law was the thing that started this fight between him and his former self, which is a weird way of talking, but hold that thought. But look at Paul's journey with it. I really do love this. Look at verse 7. He says, look, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that as he was working through this summary of the law in the Ten Commandments, he thought he was doing pretty well. He thought to himself, you know what? Hadn't killed anybody lately, so I think I'm fine on that whole do not murder thing. But then he hit the brick wall. The brick wall is called the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. And once he got to that, he suddenly realized, look at verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He died. What in the world is Paul talking about? What he's saying is, is he said, my sin never really came home to me until I got to this commandment. It's kind of fun to speculate exactly what it was about the coveting that really undid him. And I think there's a reasonable guess to be made that like this. Because the truth of the matter is, the other commandments are relatively easy to externalize and say to ourselves, well, you know, as long as I never really actually touched her, it doesn't matter what went on in my mind with the whole adultery thing. But coveting is different because coveting only takes place on the inside. You ever thought about that? It comes down to the level of your motives and your desires. So what Paul is saying is, I never understood my sin nature as a matter of my inward longings, as a matter of idolatrous drives and, and evil desires. In other words, I'd never seen sin as essentially coveting against God, which is failing to love him enough so that I'm ultimately content. That's what the Ten Commandments commands of us. He said, look, prior to studying that commandment, I only thought of sin in terms of these external behaviors. But that one got inside, which I think makes it a very interesting question to look at psychologically. Paul is saying the experience of having that commandment on the inside to me was like a death on the inside. Why would he say that? Well, I think there's reason to sort of speculate. I think what Paul is saying is, is once, or how about this, when was the last time you had to verbalize your own guilt about something? I remember my first time. It happened when I was in high school. For some reason, all my illustrations are gearing towards my, my traffic failures as a high schooler. So be warned when you see me on the streets of Oxford, but I digress. But I remember having to go to traffic court. They made all the teenagers come on one particular night, right? And we got in there. And the judge had this thing that he did where he would make you verbalize your guilt. So he would stop and he would say, so, Mr. Newsom, how is it that you plead? And in my sort of mid-pubescent voice, I croaked out, guilty. And I remember having to say it and it like putting this pit in my stomach of like, ugh. There's something that came, in, that came over me in that moment that was this sense of wrongness, this sense of guilt, of suddenly being like, 
I'm on the wrong side of that guy up on the bench. Like I'm on his bad side right now. And suddenly there was this dread and this fear, this foreboding that was downright depressing. It feels like I heard one person say one time, like somebody turned the lights off inside of you. Do you know what that's like? Hmm. Well, second, as if that wasn't enough, in verse 13, Paul says something else happened. Not only did the sin kind of come alive and I died, but it actually got worse because through the commandment, sin became sinful beyond measure. What in the world are you talking about there? Well, Paul is saying that the more he tried to avoid coveting and envy, the more covetous and envious he became. This was crazy. The second problem with the law is that it doesn't just unmask sin for what it is, it actually makes it worse by letting us know just exactly how gross our sin natures really are. Now look, bear with me for an illustration here. Remember the last time you were walking, say, on the square, maybe through the grove or something, and some person had put a little sign up on the ground that said, do not walk on the grass. Now you tell me that there's not something inside of you standing beside that that didn't want to go, It's innate in everybody. Where does that come from? The point is, Paul is saying, look, it's not the sign that made you do that. But the sign excited something already in you that you only knew in theory before. In other words, we can call ourselves sinners all day and have a pretty superficial apprehension of it. But the minute that you try to fix yourself by yourself or with the law, <laughs> you're going to find it's a whole lot worse than you thought. Look, what Paul is saying is that what gets stirred up inside of us is the realization that in our hearts is a perversity. Don't sexualize that word for a second. Our hearts are perverse. Something is perverse when we desire it for no other reason than the fact that it is forbidden. The joy is in the wrongdoing. And Paul says every one of us are sick from it. Turns out there's a great story from early church father, St. Augustine, who in his little book, uh, The Confessions, which is him reflecting on his life, he thinks about what happened to him as a child. Apparently, he and some friends one particular afternoon decided that they would go into a pear orchard and steal pears. And it really marked Augustine after he had done it. And as he reflected on why... He said, because I realized that I stole something of which I had plenty of my own and even of better quality. <laughs> he says, nor did I wish to enjoy the thing which I desired to gain. Rather, I wanted to enjoy the theft. It was the sin of theft that I loved. Okay, this is what Paul learned about himself. He's like saying, look, this sin that I'm committing is not about my advantage it's not about an insatiable consumption inside of me. It's not even because I believe that I'm going to be happier if I get that sin. I don't like the law because I want to be in charge. I don't like that God is asking me to do anything, quite frankly. That's my problem. And he said that never really came home to me until all of a sudden he tried to fix himself with the law. Look, here's the point. The descriptive concept for the Christian life is that it's a struggle. We have to learn this. It's vital that we grasp it because otherwise we're going to find ourselves preoccupied with what some used to call the victorious Christian life or worse, the people that actually thought they were achieving it. 
And what always happened whenever you would hear people talk that way, I begin to suspect inside my mind that somewhere along the way they've stopped looking at God's law. Because that's what the law leads us into. God's rules for living always have to be kept in front of us. Not, as we've said, because your salvation depends on it, but because it's only that way that will keep you humble enough to keep depending on God's grace. Here's the deal. Justification absolutely is by grace. (laughs) But no less is our sanctification by the exact same grace. Same deal. Okay, so that's the reality of the fight. Second question I'm going to ask in closing this morning is, what about the location of the fight? Because I'm sure that all sounds very depressing, but it's actually not. Because Paul is simply saying that if you don't set your table properly in terms of your expectations of what you're capable of as both a sinner and a saint, then you're certainly not going to be satisfied with his amazing solution. Because what follows up at this section, honestly, I think is one of the most Uh, uh, helpful, honest, authentic description of the human experience that you could read in the Bible. The first time people read this, I used to love to show it to college students because they were like, what? (laughs) They resonate so deeply with this. Look at verse 15, first of all. Paul says, for I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And he believes it so much, he says it twice. Look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want, that's what I keep on doing. Anybody ever felt that way? Look, in my experience, there's lots of people who hear this, and there's two kinds of people. On the one hand, there's people like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. But on the other hand, there's lots of people who can hear it theoretically, but it still doesn't click. Think about the last argument that you had, maybe with your spouse, maybe with your children. Oftentimes, let's say they're doing something that drives you crazy. And you're even convinced to some degree that what they're doing is sin. And you say something along the lines of this. You're like, well, if you really wanted to stop doing that, you would stop doing that. But if what Paul just said, that's not necessarily true, now is it? Because Paul is saying, I know lots of people who may deeply desire change, but they fail over and over and over again. And so Paul is saying, the Christian life is so much more complex than that. Don't try to oversimplify it into something that it's not and turn it into a lie. Look, pause for just a second because before we dive into more of this further, we have to look at this passage really carefully and figure out something very important that have bugged commentators for a while. And the question surrounds this. Who is the I mentioned in these verses? When Paul says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. Well, at first glance, it seems pretty obvious. It's Paul. And that's clear. The question, though, is which Paul are we talking about? And in general, the people all fall off into two sides. There are those who look at these passages and say, well, this is Paul reflecting back on before when he was not a Christian. Does that make sense? This is the non-Christian Paul talking about that. In other words, Paul is describing what it was like before when there was the conflict, right? Now, why do they say this? Well, look at verse 23. Paul says this other law waging war against him is, quote, making me captive to the law of sin. But here's the deal. Paul has been talking about throughout all these chapters being set free from the law of sin, like the whole time. So, they reason, the Christian, this, this person cannot be talking about a Christian experience. Paul has to be thinking about when before he was not a Christian. All right, that's option one. Option two are those who look and say, no, 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 no. This I that Paul was mentioning 
has to be a Christian. Why? Look at verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Well, wait a minute. Do you remember all the terrible things Paul said about our inner beings in chapters 1, 2, and 3? <laughs> there ain't no way that that person back there is going to delight in the law of God. And so therefore, in my view, Paul has to be talking about a person who is already a Christian. Of course they're converted. However, I'm also convinced that he's talking about a specific kind of person. Commentator John Stott believes, and he's convinced me, that the eye of Romans 7, yes, is converted, but they're in a battle. And they're in a battle to learn how to live according to the Spirit. He's had the Holy Spirit make him alive in Christ, yes. But as long as he's using the law to be the, things that try, the thing that tries to fix his indwelling sin, there's more and more division inside of himself. More and more spiritual schizophrenia, if you will. That's who he's describing. But here's the point. This is every Christian's battle. Every Christian's battle. Because the fight of our Christian, our sinful nature is always on this ground. This is the location of the fight. The location of the fight is in all of those places where you depend on something. It's in those places, like we talked about last week, where you reckon something to be true. Or where it says in Romans 6, where you count yourself. Let me use another example. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Aha. All right, young people, don't do this now. Don't listen to what I just said and be like, oh, the next time I get in trouble, I'll simply look at my parents and say, hey, wasn't me who did it. It was sin that dwells in me. Sounds like an excuse, doesn't it? So that's what Paul's doing, but that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is, is the most profound way to locate where this struggle is going to be is by putting in the place of your identity. Listen to what Paul's saying. It's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. Paul is saying, look, the fact that I'm a Christian at all happened because I had an identity transformation. The way that I total up and add up and think about me has completely changed and been put on entirely new ground. Paul says, look, as a Christian, the I, my truest self, really does seek God, loves his law, wants him to transform me. But of course, there's this other principle inside me that has a lot of strength. But the difference is it no longer dominates my personality. It's not the driving force in my life. Granted, it's still able to lead me to disobey God, sometimes even for seasons at a time. But in the end, I've learned to hate it because it goes against my deepest self-understanding. The Christian, even in the midst of their defeat in sin, still has had a change of consciousness. The real I, the real me. Sin is no longer me. Sin is it. It is other in the mind of the Christian. In other words, it's something alien to me now. It doesn't go with my truest self. I hope you can see how profound this is. Because I do think that one of our keys to success in fighting sin is based upon where we think the fight is. For a lot of us, we want that fight to be intellectual. If I could just figure this out. Some of us want it to be emotional. If I could work myself up into a feeling state. Others of us are doing all these gimmicks again to try to trick my willpower into being faster and stronger. 
But no, the battle for the Christian, though, is played on the playing field of your deepest commitments, of your deepest self-understanding. And all of those things, your mind, your emotions, your will, they're included, but they're subsumed under what the Bible calls the heart. And we can root this right here in Proverbs 27, 19, where the writer says, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of a man reflects the man. What's, what's the writer saying? The proverb writer saying is you want to know yourself. You have to get to know your heart and find out the biblical definition of the heart first and then start to follow those threads. Start to watch those patterns of my internal emotions as they rise and fall. To follow the things that I find myself preoccupied with in a given day. The places where I allow my mind to drift when I don't have anything else to think about. Because tracing those lines ultimately leans up in the heart of what God is playing. That's the location of the fight, is in the Christian heart. It was September 23rd in 1997, and Steve Jobs, the newly returned CEO of Apple, called all the employees together in a huge, massive assembly. And he announced to them, he said, this morning I need you to know that I've wiped out 70% of our entire product line. I'm no business genius. That doesn't sound like a too wise a move to wipe out 70% of your product line. But he said, look, but there's a reason for this. The reason why we're slashing all these product offerings is because we have not answered a question. We've not asked it and we've not answered it. And the question is this, who is Apple? And why do we exist in the world? Fast forward 25 years later, and it's the most profitable company on the planet. And my guess is, if you drag Tim Cook in here, the present CEO of Apple in here, he would tell you that that same fight is the fight that he has to fight every single day. That's where the battle is. You're not going to win a fight if you don't show up in the right place. And by the end of it, of course, Paul throws up his hands and is like, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But of course, he answers his own question, doesn't he? Thanks be to God through Jesus. What's he saying? He's like, who will deliver me? It is Jesus that will. Oh, by the way, and has. It's not only Jesus that will save me. He has saved me. It's not only Jesus will make me holy. He has made me holy. It's so certain what he's going to accomplish in us. Why can he say that? Well, let me give you a quick little preview of our Easter message coming in two weeks from Romans chapter 8. Because Paul there looks and says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's doing? Paul, even in the midst of remembering his struggle with sin, is walking himself through the practice of identity reaffirmation. He's remembering who he is. That's the struggle. That's the plan. That's where the fight is. So here's a question. Have you forgotten who you are? Has there ever been a time where you thought to yourself, I want to spend a season praying about and asking God to unfold my heart? Maybe it involves going to see a friend, a counselor, a pastor, somebody, gotten alone, doing whatever, to ask this question, who is the real me? What, what motivates me? What is it that energizes me? What is it that animates my daily tasks? Because until we answer that question, there's not going to be any progress made in this life. Certainly not in the, in the healing that God wants to bring to us. That's a challenge, isn't it? Let's pray. 
And Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, we pray that you would feed us with the nourishment that we need to be able to fight that battle well. But if it's what's true about our hearts, uh, that's what Paul has said about us, we know that that's an uphill climb, but not for your spirit. Would you give us then strength for that, that experience, a way of seeing, a way of changing, a way of being what you've called us to be? Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, most soldiers will tell you that one of the great challenges on the battlefield is keeping a soldier well-provisioned for the army and getting them ready to fight. With all the things in the news about the war in Ukraine, it's got me fascinated to see how much the supplies that we need to get to these great armies are important to keeping the battle going, making sure the Ukrainian army is taken care of. Well, it's the same way with the Lord's Supper. We have an old hymn that says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And, and what he says is, and sinners that are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What Paul's saying this morning is that same blood is not just what saves us, it's also what nourishes us. And there's nothing more vivid that he pictured in that process than a meal. I love that. Jesus invites you to dinner this, this afternoon. <laughs> and he wants you to sit and he wants to think and he wants to search your heart. But don't look inside your heart for something good. That's a fool's errand. You come here to say, no, I need something from the outside to go into me. That's what's being enjoyed here. That's the joy. So look, it is our practice uh, at our church for you to come forward to receive the meal. There will be two elders, Lord willing, at each of, uh, of every section of the church. And the usher will be there to release you row by row. Just come up and form a little semicircle up here at front. And the elder will serve you both uh, juice and bread, gluten-free as well, for those of you that are concerned about that. But as you do, we want to make sure that as you come and you partake, that this is something that, um, that we do in faith. And once we're done, we exit out the side of the road. Um, we also want to encourage you to bring your children forward. Uh, but however, it's our tradition that you wait before you allow your child to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper until they themselves have professed their own faith before the church. Uh, if everyone, maybe the elder needs to whisper in your ears, the child taking communion. And if they're not, they very well may have a nice blessing to pray over them as they do. So we hope that you'll come forward uh, as we prepare our hearts for it. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would now set these elements apart as you have set us apart. These things are common elements, just bread and juice. And yet, Father, the, common, the commonness of our own lives, you deem to be special. So by your spirit, you spiritually inhabit these elements so that they might nourish us in this struggle and make us to be what you would have us to be. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.